Luke chapter 13. I want to read the first nine verses. And so if you're physically able, I would invite you, if you would, to stand as we read the word of God together. Here's what the Bible has to say. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling this parable. A certain man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vine keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. So there's something that happens when tragic events occur that we do almost naturally without really paying much attention to what's happening in our heart and mind. And that is that when when tragic events happen or some unforeseen tragedy or disaster occurs, we often pass judgment in our minds and our hearts on the innocence or the, the guilt of those to whom the disaster happened to. Now, so let me give an example, a couple examples just to show what I mean by this. So imagine with me that we hear on the news this afternoon that a, that a church or maybe a school, an elementary school was destroyed by a, uh, by a tornado and, and maybe some people were hurt. And we would say, oh, that's a terrible event uh, that happened to innocent people. And oh, I feel so bad about that. Okay. Now imagine not two seconds later, another news report comes and it and it tells of a, a very strange event that a meteor fell from the sky, a big one. And a meteor fell from the sky and it fell directly on top of a nightclub and destroyed the whole building. And it went on to tell you how that nightclub club was, was known for debauchery and all sorts of wicked behavior that happened in there. And as you're listening to that news report, you might think, well, they got what they deserved. God brought judgment upon them. And you're making a judgment statement of guilt upon those who died. Now, self-judgments may give some false self-righteous satisfaction, but they deny the fact that all of us are sinners and all of us outside of the grace of Jesus are under the condemnation of God. When the... English poet John Milton was very old and 
blind and somewhat obscure for his day, King Charles II came to visit him. Now, if you know your English history, King Charles II was the son of Charles I who was, was killed by the, the Puritan takeover of England and the Cromwell reign and all that stuff. And Charles said uh, to the blind poet Milton, he said, your blindness is a judgment from God for the part you took in my father's death. It is said that Milton replied without much thought, and he said, well, if, my, if I have lost my sight through God's judgment, what must you say about your father who lost his head? And the point is this. Every day, all day long, there are things that are happening, tragic disasters and disease and death and all sorts of things. And if we're to pass judgment on one, we must be faithful to, and consistent to pass judgment on all. But the simple truth we find in this passage is a call to repent. Jesus is responding to a dicey, a complicated political question. They want Jesus to wade into making some judgment calls about who was right and who was wrong, who was up and who was down, who was to be condemned and who was to be considered innocent. And instead of wading into those waters that were unhelpful, Jesus moves us toward a greater truth. The greater truth is that all must repent or all, all, and all those who do not repent will find the same fate. No matter the judgment of the world, will find the fa same fate of perishing. The simple truth of this passage is a call to repent. As I've said, it was the, this is the message that the prophets of the Old Testament preached. This is the singular preaching message that John the Baptist preached. This is what Jesus preached. And dear friends, until the Lord comes back, this is the message that every faithful preacher of the gospel preaches, and that is repent or you will likewise perish. Now, it's a very simple passage, and so I think this ought to be a very simple message. And I want us to see three simple truths here this morning. Number one is that there's a universal need. Everybody must repent because everybody sins. Number two, you and I presently are living in a present grace. In other words, there's opportunity today to repent and be saved. And then lastly, I, I think we would not do well for any of us here today if we did not articulate and recognize that there is a day when grace will be no more and judgment will come and the opportunity for repentance will have ended. But let's begin with universal need. Now, here's the point I want to make here, and that is that no sin is greater than another. Now, the question that is posed to Jesus has both religious and, and, and political context. And so here's what we believe is being referenced here. Pontius Pilate, who you may have heard of before, was the Roman governor, and he did not have good relations with the, with the, Jewish, the Jews that he ruled. In fact, they hated him, and it's likely that he at least was, uh, could care less about them or maybe was even hostile toward them. And a lot of the hostility that came was because he was completely unaware or unconcerned or ignorant of the, the convictions and the religious realities for the Jews. And so he did a lot of things that was offensive to them. He was either insensitive or indifferent to their religious convictions, and it caused a lot of resentment. 
Now, the incident that we think is referenced here may have happened when Pilate, what's the right word here? I would say stole. He would probably say appropriated temple funds to build an aqueduct. Now, let's just put this in the context. Imagine that Nowhere County is being ruled by a foreign government. And the foreign government wants to do something. They want to build a bridge. They want to build a road. And so they come to Central Baptist and they take the money that you had given to the church to do something that the foreign government wants to do. Now, any red-blooded American, that'd make you mad. Amen? That's what he had done. He'd gone to the temple. He'd taken the money from the temple, and he had used it to build and to, find, to help finance an aqueduct. And as a result of that, a large crowd of very angry Jews had, had protested. And, and, and really, I think you think of, the thing you ought to think in this context is more of sort of a mob protest, uh, of, uh, almost a violent protest. And so in order to put down that protest, Pilate had, allowed, had called, uh, commanded some of his soldiers to dress like civilians to mingle in amongst the crowd and then with concealed weapons kill some of the innocents that were there. And so the question was posed to Jesus, what do you think about that? You can imagine it was the talk of town. At every coffee shop, at every breakfast circle, at every water cooler, that was the question. What about what Pilate did to the Galileans? Now, if Jesus had ignored the issue, he would have been accused of being pro-Roman, and that would have, would have caused him all sorts of trouble with, with the Jews that he was preaching to. And of course, if he had defended, if he had even said anything negative about the mob, then, then, then he would have, um, or anything negative about Pilate, he would have been in trouble with Rome. And frankly, that's probably what the religious leaders wanted him to do, because then they could go to Pilate and go, listen, he's talking about you. He's stirring up insurrection. And that would have been an opportunity for them to call for his arrest. Rather than dealing with Pilate's sin, Jesus takes it up one level. Now, here's the truth about everyone in this room, including me. I'm more than happy to talk about your sin, but it makes me a little nervous to talk about my own. Amen? I've noticed over the years of my preaching that when people come to me at the back of the church and tell me, boy, that was a good preach. Boy, you preach hard today, pastor. They're usually saying they liked my sermon because they figured I was talking to somebody else. And when I get really close to the issues that they deal with, they go out a side door and they won't talk to me for three weeks. We like talking about somebody else's sin, but when we talk about our own, it makes us a little nervous. Instead of, instead of Jesus wading into the waters of what they wanted him to do and say, Pilate's wicked, he's terrible, we ought to be condemned, Jesus elevates it even higher and he says, you know what the reality is? Unless you repent, we'll all likewise perish. And Jesus answers the question with the question. And he brings up a question about a tragic death. Now, we don't know all the details here, but apparently a, 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 a tower fell, maybe during the construction of it, maybe from wind. We don't know. But and when that tower fell, think in this terms of just a, an unforeseen natural disaster or an unforeseen tragedy. The tower fell, 18 people were killed. And Jesus says, was one group more wicked than the other? You know, among men, we judge some sin as more deserving of God's judgment than others. And among men, we judge some sinners as more deserving of God's judgment than others. But here's the truth. 
no matter what your sin is, you must repent. No matter how vile or excusable you think your sin is or the world sees your sin, you must repent. You see, because no matter the sin, all sin condemns and demands repentance. You see, the reality of it is no one is exempt from the call to repent. Now, the particulars of sin are always different, but the outcome is always the same. The particulars may be different, but the outcome is the same. There are some who are in clear need of repentance. Now, we know who those are. Those are the folks who flaunt their sin. Those are the folks who live in open rebellion before the Lord. And probably if there would be no debate in this room as far as, yes, those folks need to repent. It's clear they're haters of God. They're open rebellion to the Lord. They revel in their rebellion and their wickedness. And we'd say, yes, those folks need to repent and get right with God. There are some who live what we would consider acceptable lives. Their sin isn't exposed. They live lives that outwardly seem to be obedient to the law of God. This is the point of Jesus' question. He asked the 18 who died in the tragic fall of the tower. They weren't protesting. They weren't agitating the, the local government. They weren't in the mob. The 18 that, that died when the tower fell, they were likely going about their business. Maybe it was some people who were working on the tower, but it very well could have been some who were just going to the market. Children going to school. People going to work. People sitting out having coffee, just doing regular life. Innocent people. Are they worse than all the other people in Jerusalem? The 18 who, that were killed by the tragic accident seemed innocent as compared to those who were killed protesting Rome. But Jesus changes the perspective. It is not, why did these die? And here's the real question. Why do I live? You see, friends, sin condemns and causes us to be under the judgment of God. And the Bible declares that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible declares that the wages of sin is death. Therefore, because all have sinned, all deserve death, the question, the demand is all must repent. The criminal and the citizen must repent. The politician and the pastor must repent. The clearly guilty and the seemingly innocent must repent because all have fallen short of the glory of God. Every man, woman, boy, and girl in this room and around the globe has a universal need for the salvation of Jesus. Every man, woman, boy, and girl must repent of their sin to be right with Jesus. There's a universal need, but here is the good word today. Here's the good word. And that is that you and I are in a present grace. Now, two things about grace. First is that we're living in a present time of grace, that God has been gracious to us in time. 
So to drive home the urgency of the need to repent, Jesus tells a parable about a fig tree. Now, fig tree was often used to symbolize Israel. So those hearing this parable would have immediately clued in, oh, he's talking about us. There's an interesting side note here. The law had, uh, had, the Levitical law had an interesting rule about eating fruit from newly planted trees. In Leviticus chapter 19, it says, when you enter the land and plant all kinds of trees and f- for food, then you shall count their fruit as forbidden. To you it shall not be eaten, but in the fourth year all its fruit shall be holy and an offering of praise to the Lord. In the fifth year you are to eat its fruit, that is, uh, yield, uh, that is, its yield may increase to you. I am the Lord your God. In this parable we, we, we find that it says about this man that... Um, that, uh, that uh, uh, he, he, uh, the, the vine keeper, behold, three years I have come looking uh, for fruit on this fig tree without finding any, cut it down. In other words, this, this tree had not yet produced fruit. And the fourth year that was to be holy to the Lord, no expectation. In the parable, Jesus says that the vine keeper pleads for one more year to apply fertilizer. Now, here's what I want you to hear. God is overwhelmingly gracious in his timing. There has been sufficient time for you to hear the word of God and repent. There will not be a single person who will stand under the judgment of God and be able to say, oh, I didn't have opportunity. No one today can say they have not had opportunity to hear God's truth and repent. And yet, here's the truth. God waits. God waits. And he waits because of grace. Second Peter says it this way. He says, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. But he is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. In other words, God could have come at any moment with his judgment. God could have come at any moment with his judgment, and yet he in his grace waits, desiring not that you, be, that you perish, but desiring that you be saved by coming to repentance. Listen to me carefully, friends. It's not that sinners will be judged. Sinners are already judged and under the judgment of God. Notice in the parable, the tree already deserves to be cut down. It's worthless. It's taken up nutrients out of the ground and space in the vineyard. The, the, the vine owner says, cut it down. It doesn't even deserve to be in the dirt. In other words, it is already under judgment. It is already worthy of swinging the axe at its trunk. But he withdrew his judgment as an act of grace that it might have an opportunity to produce fruit. And God is withholding his judgment even today that you might have an opportunity to repent. God is gracious in time. And I love this one too. He is gracious in his provision. When the, when, when, the, when the vine owner says, cut it down, which is a righteous command, 
the, the, the vine keeper asks for two things. He says, I, I, I want some more time to do two things. I want to dig around the tree and I want to apply some fertilizer. That is, he wanted to prepare the ground to receive the needed nutrients and provide all the nutrients. And I think you could even press in here more than enough nutrients for the tree to produce good fruit. Now, friends, listen to me carefully here. Has God not provided more than graciously his provision for us to hear the word? Has he not? Has he not poured out abundantly to us to hear his word? I don't believe there'll be any on the day of judgment who will be able to say the ground was not prepared and the good food of the Word of God was not applied. Oh, God has provided amazing access to His Word. You know, there were days, there were days in the history of the church when the only Bible that was in the vernacular, in other words, the, the language that the people spoke, usually there might be one in the community, and they would chain it to the pulpit so that it would not be stolen. You know, the reality for you and I today is if we were to bring every Bible that we owned into this room, we'd have a mountain of Bibles, would we not? And that's just the, that's just the, the physical Bibles we have. You, you've got a smartphone in your pocket or purse today. You've got access to just about every translation available, and it'll even read it to you. Has God not made it available for us? Access to pre faithful preaching of the gospel? Is it not available to us? Abundantly provided for us? God has been amazing in his gracious provision. He waits in grace and he provides in grace that you might hear the word and repent. Now there's a third reality here. And that is that there is a coming judgment. So right now, you and I live in a present opportunity. It's interesting the way the parable ends. Let's just put our eyes back on the end of the parable. So in verse 8 and 9, it says, uh, and, and he answered and said to him, let it alone serve for this year too. I will dig around it put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Now, that's where the parable ends. Jesus doesn't tell us the end of the story. I mean, I want to know, don't you? Did, did it bear fruit and survive? Or did the next year it be as barren as the year before and the, the vine keeper had to bring out the axe or bring out the chainsaw and cut it down. What happened to the tree? Jesus doesn't tell us in the story, and I think that's on purpose. It's an open-ended parable. The listener's not given a conclusion about did the tree bear fruit, or did the special care help, or was the tree cut down? Because, see, the question here is not about what happened to the tree. The question here is what will happen to me, what will happen to you. tree was given an opportunity to respond that it might escape the vine keeper's axe. Friends, 
none of us know. None of us know when the Lord will return. But I do know this. You and I presently live in a present opportunity of grace, but it will not last forever. What I do know is that today, this moment is the day of salvation. I do know that this day is the opportunity for repentance. I do know that today is the opportunity to bear fruit of salvation. Today is the day. I can't promise you tomorrow. I can't promise you an hour. But I know at this moment is the present opportunity. For the tree, it was bear fruit or be cut down. And for us today, it is as it, as it has been since this message was preached. Repent or perish. There's a present opportunity. And dear friends, we must be very clear. There is a future consequence. The judgment of the Lord is not a question of if. It's a question of when. You see, a, a lot of folks today are living their life as if the judgment of God is an if. Well, if he comes back. And you're betting your eternity on the, true, on the assumption that he's not. But he's coming back, friends. He's coming back. The vine owner's coming back. There is coming a day when the judgment of God will no longer be withheld. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 3, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And if, if you don't hear the, the intensity of that moment, it's there. The call to repent is an urgent call. The urgency is, I don't know how long you have. I don't know how long I have. I don't know how long this world has. But I know today's the day of salvation. The call to repent is an urgent call. The call to repent is a desperate call. Because time is fleeting. The opportunity to be saved will not last. And so every preacher, from Isaiah to Jeremiah to this day, Please repent today and live. The most moving, powerful funeral that I ever preached, or better said, was ever a part of, the powerful, moving moment did not come from my funeral message, but from an unexpected congregation member standing up, which always makes a preacher nervous, standing up in the middle of the event and saying, can I say a few words? The funeral was for a man who had been a member of my church since before I came to pastor there. It's a previous church. And all the days that I had known him, he was, I knew him to be quiet, Hardworking, but a man that didn't say a lot of words. 
He was very faithful to be at church and Sunday school. I mean, he was more faithful than most other people in the church. He died very suddenly. He was still very active and, and, and seemingly healthy, and he died suddenly, unexpectedly. And, and, and that began the process that for a pastor is pretty familiar. So I, I made my way to the, to the home of the family, and I sat down with them, and they, they told me stories and antidotes about him, and, and, I, and I collected those. And, and then I went back, and I prepared to preach his funeral. And and when, I, when I, the day for the funeral came, it was a, a pretty standard funeral. We were going to have a service in the church, and then we were going to go to the graveside and, and have a committal service there. And so in the church, I did like I had done many times before. I, I prepared notes, and I, I spoke per, uh, primarily from what the family had told me about him. And, and when you're at a funeral, you find kind, nice things to say about people, right? And to be totally honest, I didn't know anything unkind or ungracious to say everything I knew about him. He was faithful to church. He was a, a, not, a, not, a not a loud man, a, a quiet man. He was not a man of many words. And so I told stories that his family told me, and then I preached the gospel message and a funeral message. And then after that was over, we, we all lined up like you do. We go to the, to the graveside, and the graveside I had planned to, to read a few passages of Scripture and then pray, and we would, be, we would conclude the service. And that's when it happened. So I, I read a few passages of Scripture, and uh, I said a few words, and I began, I, I was preparing to pray when I hear this voice say, Preacher, can I say something? Now I'm just going to tell you, from a pastor's point of view, that strikes chords of fear in your heart because you don't know what's about to come out. Well, it was the man's brother. And he really wasn't asking. He was really telling me he was about to speak because as without in the same breath of asking could he speak, he began to speak. He stood up, and this brother of the man that we were burying began by acknowledging that for the most part of the man's life that we were burying, he had lived in rebellion to God well into adulthood. The man had been a drunkard. He had been a fighter. He had been belligerent. He had been a carouser and for many years had not been faithful to his marriage, to his children, to anything else. And his brother openly acknowledged right there in front of everybody and that for many years, uh, for, and for many of those who had gathered that day, if they had known him, they knew him not as a good man, not as a kind man, not as a godly man, but rather as one whose actions and sin had caused a lot of pain and a lot of destruction, hurt. And as he spoke, I'm standing there facing the crowd. I see on their faces acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. But then he said, and this is the moment that the moment turned. But then he said the most powerful words of the day. He said, my brother lived a very sinful life for a very long time. But I want you to know that several years ago, 
He repented of his sin. He gave his life to Jesus and he was saved. And then he said, the man that we are burying today is not the man who lived in rebellion for so many years. That man died years ago. Today we're burying a man whose name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That brother with tears in his eyes said, I want all of you to know that my brother knew Jesus. These last few years of his life were radically different from the years he spent in rebellion. And he said, I am sad to lose my brother today, but I am overjoyed that without a doubt, I know that today my brother who was lost is found in Jesus today. My brother who was blind sees truth today. Oh, my brother who was far off has been brought near today. I sat there thinking, brother, why don't you say that at the start of the service? What a powerful testimony. Here's the bottom line today. Very simple. That testimony that that brother gave if you are to be right with the Lord and enjoy salvation, that must be the testimony given about you. You hear me? Nobody gets to heaven because everybody thought you were a good person. Nobody is right before the, before the living God because all the people you knew thought you were pretty good. The only way to be right is to repent. To repent of your sins, that means to turn around Turn away from sin and self. Turn to Jesus. The Bible says that if you confess him as Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. The message is old. The message is simple. And the message is true. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. But oh, the joy, dear friends. Today, you have opportunity Today is the day of salvation. Repent and be saved.